guys, so I am back with chapter one of James and I could not be more excited to share this with you guys. It has been such an awesome, awesome first chapter and I just cannot wait to dive deep into this with y'all. So jumping right off, I'm going to start with um, the footnote that comes in my Bible for chapter one verses one through 12 and it says the first section of this book is about being tested for toughness. James calls God's training regimen various kinds of trials. And you're going to see throughout this whole chapter about um, trials and how to deal with trials and what to do in the midst of trials. And that's just why I just love this first chapter. So um, let's just dive right in. And my Bible has so many good footnotes and I just cannot wait to share those with y'all. So jumping right in, we're probably going to stop verse by verse, probably almost all the way through the first chapter. Um, But... um, I'll go through and I'll read a few and then we'll stop and talk about it and then we'll just continue on. So verse 1 starts, says, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And I'm just going to stop right there because my Bible has a really good footnote. And I'm probably going to do that, probably just going to stop, read the verse, stop, read the footnote, talk about it a little bit. So, um... My um, footnote says, To count all joy means to appraise one's situation intelligently, confident of the good that God can do through it. Jesus demonstrated this in his life. The trials that God allows strengthen the believer and are different from the consequences of sin in a believer's life. So whenever we find ourselves in different types of trials, you know, what is our reaction? Do we normally count it all joy? Do we um, complain? Or do we think that, you know, maybe something that we did is why we're in this trial? But um, James really just stops and tells us to um, count it all joy. And we probably normally don't, but it's something that we have to train ourselves to do as Christians, to count it all joy when we are in these trials. Because just like this footnote says, the trials that God, the, the trials that God allows strengthen the believer and are different from the consequences of sin in a believer's life. So in these trials, this is not a consequence for sin. This is not a punishment for us. This is not something bad happened to us because we did something bad. This is something that God is allowing for us to grow closer to Him and to grow in our relationship with Him and just to strengthen us in all spiritual aspects. So I really like that one. And um, verse 3 says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And this Bible says patience. But one of the first Bibles I ever had it says, knowing the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And I know it means the same thing, but I just really like the word perseverance. And um, so, God testing our faith is a good thing. Um, it helps us grow more mature spiritually. It's not, like it said in the past footnote, it is not a consequence. It is not our punishment. He is doing this um, to test our faith and to help us grow. And... Um, The footnote of the Bible says, Patience does not require us to resign ourselves to whatever happens, but to have a tough resolve or or brave endurance in adverse circumstances. Trials produce durability as well as maturity. So not not only do trials produce maturity, but they produce durability too to help us as Christians withstand through these other trials that may not be as big as these or may not be as strong as these. And so that's why that's always probably been one of my favorite verses is that knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance because it's just kind of like that encouragement. It's that reminder that even through all of these trials and all of these hard times, this is not a consequence, but this is just teaching me perseverance. And this is producing perseverance in my life and in my walk with Christ. So I really like that. 
And then it says, verse 4 goes on to say, But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And it says, So without these trials, even though we might not like them, we cannot be fully mature or complete in the eyes of God. Trials are essential and do not exclude anyone. And I really like that because I feel like some people want to think that, you know, they've done so much bad or they've been through so much stuff that they have that they go through all these certain trials but this other person it seems like they just have everything together does not go through trials but everyone goes through trials in their in their life in their walk with Christ trials do not exclude anyone it just depends on how you want to take these trials how you want to see these trials as a believer and so the footnote in my bible says perfect means to be fully and completely developed or mature complete refers to being whole without trials Christians cannot develop to maturity or wholeness so it's like i said these trials do not exclude anyone because without these trials christians cannot we as christians cannot develop to the maturity or the wholeness that we are supposed to be in christ so it kind of goes back to verse 2 to count it all joy when you go through these trials because knowing that these trials produce perseverance and it will lead you to be more it'll lead you to be spiritually mature and complete in the eyes of god so that's just something really kind of like a little bit of encouragement to think when you're going through these trials you know this is not my punishment this is not a consequence but this is God preparing me and maturing me and um in my walk with him and so that's just a little bit of encouragement to think about when you're going through those times so and then verse five says if any of you lacks wisdom let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without repro- without reproach and it will be given to him and so um, we can only gain true wisdom from God if we ask at the point at that point we obtain a wisdom only he can provide and I really like that because um, I like how it I wrote down I was like we can only gain true wisdom from God if we ask we can't just expect to just sit back and not pursue God and not pursue his word and just expect him to give us the wisdom that only he can give. That wisdom comes from pursuing God and for asking of him, asking that whatever be in his will be done and he will give you the wisdom to understand his will and to understand where he would have you to go. And so the footnote in my Bible says, those with wisdom know what to do in the midst of confusion, in the midst of confusing circumstances, a clarity that only God can give but that one he will provide without reproach if his children only ask. Liberally means stretching out. Picture a beautiful banquet table arrayed with the delicious morsels of wisdom that God has made available to believers. This is how generous God is toward his, toward his children. So God is so generous to give us this wisdom, give us the wisdom that only he can give, but only if we ask. And it's like it says, um... Those, those with wisdom know what to do in the midst of confusing circumstances, a clarity that only God himself can give. So as a believer, if we know what to do or if we feel that we know what to do in this confusing circumstance, that is the wisdom that God has given us that we have asked for. And it says, um, but one that he will provide without reproach if his children only ask. And so that is just so simple that we only have to ask of that wisdom from God and he will give that to us. We just have to be willing to humble ourselves and ask for that wisdom because we know that we need it. So moving on, um, I really like verse 6 because I feel like it goes hand in hand with verse 5. And it says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And I really like that because I feel like it goes hand in hand with um, verse 5 because verse 5 says to only ask 
And then verse six starts verse six starts with but. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. So it's not just asking and having that doubt in the back of our mind like, mm, God probably won't give me that wisdom, but I'm going to ask for it anyways. No, it is asking in faith without doubting. And it is only by those standards that we ask that we will receive that wisdom. So when asking this one, we cannot hold on to doubt. Those who doubt are like the waves of the sea. And I really like how it says, those who doubt are like the waves of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And so just like us, if we doubt, we, um, we are tossed by the waves of the sea and we can be tossed around by the winds of life if we doubt. So not only does doubting, is doubting not good spiritually, but it allows us to be vulnerable to the world and to what everyone else is saying. If we doubt what we know is true, then it just makes it so much, it, it, it just leaves us so vulnerable to the world, to everything that it says that we know is not true. So, um, moving on to, I think that's all I had for verse six. Yes. Moving on to verse seven, it says, um, for let not the man, for let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. And so, um, I have a footnote that goes with verses seven and eight. So go back and read verse seven again. It says, for let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And um, that's verses 7 and 8. And it says, The double-minded person is spiritually conflicted and therefore unsettled in all ways. True faith produces people who are stable, looking only to God for the wisdom they need, knowing that He will respond. And so, I just really like that because um, that's what goes back to when I did in the introduction that James is just so straightforward. Like, he is not scared to call us as believers names when we are not doing things the way that we are supposed to be doing. And so, I just like how he just goes out and says, For let nothing that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He does not sugarcoat anything or try to slow things down for us because he doesn't want to hurt our feelings. James is just so straightforward, and it makes us kind of step back and think, Am I unstable in all my ways? Am I a double-minded man like this says I am? And so it really just stops and thinks. And that's what I had mentioned in the introduction that James is every single chapter, every verse is going to make us stop and do a self-reflection. And I just really like that one. And so the next set of verses is 9 through 11. So I'm going to read through those. And it says, starting in verse 9, it says, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner... Has the sun risen with a burning heat, then it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. And so, God does not see our economic standing. He only sees our relationship with Him because in the end, when everything is gone, that's all that matters. And I really like how the footnote kind of engulfs that, just talks about that as a whole. And it says, The poorest person who walks with God in times of trial is better off than the wealthiest person who depends on riches. Whether rich or poor, Christians' confidence must rest in their identification with the Lord of glory. All else fades, withers, or disappears. Only God remains. And I really, really love that because you just have to stop and think, you know, this is who I am with everything that I have on this earth. But when you take away everything that I have on this earth, who am I then? And that's what I really like to think about because it's like, if you take away every bit of money from a wealthy person, who are they when everything is stripped away? Who are they on the inside? Not just about what they have on this earth, but who are they spiritually? Who are they mentally? 
And it's that's what truly matters. Who you are when everything earthly is stripped away. That is what truly matters because that is the only thing that will remain forever. Who you are in Christ and the relationship you have with Christ is the only thing that will never fade away. So that is the only thing that matters. And it's the same not just using this as like a wealthy man, but say it's the same with teenagers and a certain sport. So say um, a teenager is just, you know, they play basketball and that's all you know them for. You know, that guy plays basketball or that girl plays basketball and they're really good and that's who they are. But you have to stop and think, if that is taken from them, if that is stripped away from them, who are they after that? Who are they without basketball? Who are they without softball? Who are they without volleyball? Like, who are they? Are they a Christian? Do they have a relationship with Christ? And that's just something that you have to think about with yourself. And you have to encourage people to think about with themselves. Is just stop and have that reflection. When everything that I think I am of this world is taken away from me, then who am I after the fact? If people only see me from my eternal, my eternal perspective, not my worldly perspective, then who am I? And I think that's something, another part of the every verse will make you stop and have a self-reflection, and I really pray that that does. Stop and think today, if everything that I am of this world and everything I am of this earth is stripped away from me, what will people see? And I just really hope that you stop and think about that, and I hope that people will see that you have a relationship with Christ, and I hope that people can see that through everything that you do. But just stop and think that when everything is taken away from me and when everything has, has faded or withered or disappeared, Only God remains. And do I have him in my life? And I just want you to stop and think about that. So going on to verse 12, which is probably, if anybody was to ask me here recently what my favorite verse is, is I'll probably tell you James 1.12. And I just really like it. And I really love the notes that go with it. And so it says, um, Blessed is a man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so this, when I jot down my notes, I was like, this is my favorite, period. And so it says, um, my footnote in the Bible says, trials are a part of what God is doing to prepare his people for his blessing. And so that goes back to trials and why we should count trials all joy. Because what God is doing in our lives, no matter if it's something hard or something, it maybe it's the hardest thing we've been through. Whatever we are going through is, is what God is doing to prepare his people, to prepare us for his blessing. The person who remains faithful to the end will receive the crown of life. And so speaking of the crown of life, I want to turn to 1 Corinthians 9.25. And I want to read it. Because I really, really like it. And I have a really great note that is for a completely different podcast. But I'm just going to read it off to you a little bit because I really like it. But it says, And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. But we do for an imperishable crown. And I really love that. And the imperishable crown is the crown of life. And um, my note says, um, so... I remember a while ago at the church that I've gone to for a long time now, um, the pastor there did a message on the different crowns of life, on the different crowns of the faithful, I should say. And I really, really like that. It's like all the different crowns that you can receive once you get to heaven, and I love it. And so um, I have finally found a note in my Bible that um, talks about the crowns of the faithful. 
and it goes with 1 Corinthians 9 25 and says these are the rewards the rewards the Lord will give the faithful for serving him and there's five and so the first one is a crown of life and it's given to those who endure a great deal of testing and trial and tribulation and it says uh, the second one is a crown of glory reserved for pastors who feed the flock of God the third one is a crown of rejoicing awarded to those who win souls for Christ this crown derived from the name of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And then it says, or seven, I'm not really sure if I said that right. Anyways, so um, the fourth one is the crown of the righteousness, presented to those who fight a good fight and love the appearance of our Lord. And then the fifth crown is the crown imperishable, given to those who keep their body in submission, with, which goes with 925. And so I just really love those. And it should, I just, not going to go into super detail about it because I could talk about these all day long. But it says it should, I just kind of put a little note that it should be our goal to not only receive one of these, but all of them. Only to have the privilege to when we get to heaven to push them all back at the feet of Christ because he is the one that is worthy of them all. And I just really love that. So if you ever have time to look into the crowns of the faithful, I love every single one of them. I just think it is so cool to think about something like that. And so, um, I just really like that verse, and I really like how it talked about the crown of life, and then it took you, I really like how the footnote of the Bible just kind of took me to another scripture that led me into something more deeper, and I just really like that. And so, um, moving, alright, continuing on with the footnote, um, for verse 12, it says, at this time, winning athletes were crowned with a victory wreath. The Greek term suggests that for Christians eternal that for Christians, eternal life is the crown, the reward of victory. And I really, I just really like that verse. And I like how it just kind of led me into something different. And um, I just really like that verse a lot. And I have never thought about it in the way of looking when it says, um, who were say the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who loved him. I never thought, it never occurred to me to think about all the other crowns of the faithful until it took me to that verse in my footnote and I just really really enjoyed that and I just had to share that with y'all so um blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him promised to those who love him so just consider like it goes I keep going back to verse two but to count it all joy when you go through various trials because you will be blessed if you endure them and you endure them the way that Christ wants you to. Just as it says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. And that should be something that we should all strive to do. And I just really like that. So, um, I'm going to read. And the next set of verses is 13 and 14. And it says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And so there's so much I could say about this verse. So we might stay here for a minute. But um, I have a footnote that is for verses 13 and 14 together. And then I have one for each of them. And so the one for them together says humans begin shifting blame in the Garden of Eden. Which shows that humans have been shifting blame since the beginning of time. This started a long time ago. And so as humans begin shifting blame in the Garden of Eden when Adam told God. The woman who you gave me, gave me gave me of the tree. But God should never be blamed for sin. Sin is the sign of the enemy, the evidence of his activity. God may allow temptation to strengthen the faith of believers, but if they give in to temptation, they are alone or to blame. And I really like that because 
God himself does not tempt us. This is about, this is going back to verse 13. When it says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. And so it says, God himself does not tempt us. He gives Satan permission to tempt us. But Satan only can when he is given permission by the Lord himself. And that just kind of goes to show how mighty the Lord is and how much control and power he has over not things on this earth, but all kinds of things. And I just really like that. And kind of going back to, um, or moving on to verse 14, um, where it says, but each part, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desire and enticed. And, um, so the footnote for that says, Satan loves to take routine desires and turn them into runaway desires. Drawn away means to be snared into a trap and enticed means lured by the bait. Uh, Satan uses various kinds of bait to lure the unsuspecting into his traps. If people are not careful, they will be deceived by their desires and caught in sin, first falling and first failing and then falling. And I really like that. But just kind of with those two verses together, just God tempts us to strengthen our faith. But when we give in to temptation, that is our own fault. And that's just something we have to think about. When we fall into temptation, yes, we are being tempted for our own good so that we can grow and that we can be strengthened in our faith. But when we fall into temptation, that is no longer what God has intended for us. That it, we are only to blame when we fall into our own temptation. And so um, the footnote for verse 13 is really good. And it says, temptation is inevitable. No one escapes it, not even Christ. And I feel like that's something that a lot of people forget. That they forget that Jesus Christ lived and walked on this earth, and He was tempted just how we were tempted. And so it kind of takes us to um, it takes us to Hebrews two eighteen, and I'm just gonna go back and read that. And it says, um, let's "See, for in that He Himself has suffered, being tempted, He is able to aid those who are tempted." And I love that because. Honestly, reading James, this first chapter of James is the only time that I've had a footnote that has told me to, that has taken me to Hebrews 2.18. It I had never read that verse before and I've never heard it so plainly because I feel like, like I said, I feel like people forget that Jesus Christ was tempted just how we were tempted and he went through the same things, maybe not the exact same things that we have went through, but he has been faced with the exact same trials that some of us face today. And it says, for in that he himself has suffered. Being tempted, he is able to aid those who were tempted. So just because Jesus himself was tempted, he is able to help us and understand what we are going through when we are being tempted. And so I just really like that. It says, unless believers acknowledge this reality, they have programmed themselves for failure. And so just from that footnote, by not acknowledging that we are being tempted daily, we are setting ourselves up, setting ourselves up to fail. We have to acknowledge that we are being tempted and we have to acknowledge that Satan is out for us every single day and he's going to tempt us with anything that we can. Just like it says, just like it says, he, um, where did it say that? Satan uses various kinds of bait to lure the unsuspecting into his traps. So he will use anything he can to try to get to us and to try to lure us into this trap of temptation. And um, in a couple of minutes, we're going to talk about the four stages of temptation. And I really like that too. But kind of going back to verse 14, where it says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Um, we are tempted most 
normally when we are somewhere that we do not need to be. And if you really stop and think about it, all the times that you've been tempted, you could think, well, maybe if I hadn't put myself in that situation, maybe I wouldn't have been tempted like I was. And so it says, when we allow ourselves to get into desires, that is when we get ourselves into trouble. Um, so whenever we allow ourselves to just kind of give in to our own desires or to kind of, kind of put ourselves in situations where we know that that could not be good for us spiritually, that is when we start to get ourselves into trouble. We need to be conscious of where we are and the situations we put ourselves in. And that's when we have to be, um, we have to be really careful about where we put ourselves and we have to know our weaknesses and understand where Satan is going to try to tempt us the most. And we just need to be conscious of how we put ourselves in situations and how we get ourselves in these situations and how to get out of them if we do find ourselves in them. It says we, need, we must be very cautious because Satan loves to take everyday desires and run away with them. And I just, I like that because um, it t- really, like that footnote really said, you know, he will take, he will take, how do I say it? Satan loves to take routine desires and turn them into runaway desires. And he will do that any chance he gets. So that is why we must be very, very cautious about the things that we allow ourselves to think about or things that we allow ourselves to get into our minds because we know that Satan will take any little thing and he will run with it. And if we are not careful, then we will let our minds go with it. And so um, next, this is when it kind of talks about the stage of temptation. And it is for verses 14 through 16. So I'm going to read 14 through 16. So it says 14 starts with, and I've read it before, but it says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Um, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And so then the footnote for that says, yielding to temptation is sin. Temptation itself is not a sin. So it's only when we give in to that temptation when it becomes a sin. It says, temptation is also not just a single event, but a process involving four stages. Enticement, entrapment, endorsement, and enslavement. The key to overcoming temptation is not just to resist, but also to change one's thoughts, refocusing one's mind on what is true and on the one who assures victory. And so I really like that because... um, um, I like how it kind of breaks it up into four stages because it really makes you stop and think about, you know, this really is a process. It's not something that just happens like that. It's something that slowly begins, and the more we let ourselves fall into it, the worse it gets for us. So I just kind of broke down these four stages of temptation. And so um, the first one is enticement. So Satan will make anything look good, even our everyday things, and use them to lure us in even when we don't realize it. We must be cautious of where we allow our minds to go. And I really like that because Satan really will make anything look good. He will make anything seem like it is something good for you in that moment. Knowing that even in the long... Because we know and we have the conscience to know that even in the long term, it is not going to be good for us. But Satan will make it look like it will be good in the moment. And that is all that matters. And that is how we are enticed. He will take everyday things and make them look so good that we think we just have to have it. And that is where we are enticed. And so the second stage is entrapment. So once we have been enticed and lured in, Satan is going to trap us and keep us in the dark place we allowed ourselves to get in. It's kind of like if you've ever been fishing and um, when you get ready to set the hook, 
that's what entrapment is. Satan is setting the hook. And even though it may be very difficult for us to get out, if you are going to get out of temptation, get out now in stage two while you can. Because when stage three and four start setting in, it becomes harder and harder to break out of that trap that he has given us. At that point, when you're fishing, if you've already set the hook, at that point, Satan is reeling us in. And we are just stuck, and we're stuck, and we're stuck. And at that point, it becomes almost impossible to get out of it. And so, in here, in stage two, get out while you can. Escape the temptation while Satan only has a small hold on you until before he gets the hardest grip on you that you are just stuck in that temptation. Because the purpose of entrapment for Satan is, like I said, is to keep us in the dark place that we have allowed ourselves to get in. And it is so important to realize that, that in stage two, when you feel like you're stuck there, you don't have to be stuck there. Get out then. Get out then. Get off of his hook and just go back to what you were doing. And just like it says, um, the key to overcoming temptation is not just to resist, but also to change one's thoughts. So change your thoughts in that moment and get out of that temptation. But say if you don't, moving on to stage three is endorsement. And says at this point, Satan has us exactly where he wants us. And now he has fully invested in our failure. And so, like I said, at this point, he's reeling us in. He's getting us to the bank. And that, that is exactly where he wants us to be. He wants us, he wants us to fail. And he wants us to feel worthless. And he wants us to feel useless through this temptation. And so, if we have allowed ourselves to get to stage three, then that is when he is fully invested in our failure. And he is fully invested in us completely completing this active temptation only to feel worse afterwards and so the last step is four and um the last stage is four and it's enslavement because we have allowed ourselves to become slaves to satan and now slaves to temptation and how and now possibly creating very bad habits for ourselves and so if we continue to go through these stages one through four one through four every single day we become slaves to temptation and it becomes harder and harder every day that you fall into it to get out of it because then at that point you've created a habit for yourself and that is just that is absolutely hard to break and so um i pray that whenever you are feel like you're being tempted tempted to just get out while you can change your thoughts change your thoughts and focus on um focus your mind on what is true and on the one who assures victory which is jesus christ so i just really liked how it kind of put it in four stages because it kind of made me stop and break them down and think about what these four stages really are and i just pray that um we can realize when we are being tempted we can acknowledge that we are tempted daily and we can be willing to um you know pray and ask god for that wisdom to know when we are being tempted and the wisdom to know what to do to get out of those situations that we um, are to get out of yielding to temptation and to learn how to battle that temptation with our faith so that it can strengthen our faith and so like i said i know i said i could talk about that for a long time and i knew we were going to be here for a while but um moving on to um verse 15 it says then when desire has conceived it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown brings forth death and so basically it's like this temptation equals sin and sin equals death and so it just kind of goes like that and says we have to be so careful of what we allow to be inside of our minds because temptation leads to sin and if we fall into temptation then we are in sin and if we are not careful sin will lead to death and um 
my footnote for that one is really good. It says, just as a child is a human being before birth, so sin is present in the heart before being revealed. When people hold temptation in their hearts and fantasize about it in their minds, sin is conceived. And once sin is born, it brings forth death. So nothing good will ever come from sin. It will always lead to death. And that is why we have to be so careful what we have in our minds and what we allow ourselves to think about and fantasize about because it will ultimately, it leads to sin and sin leads to death. And so we just have to be careful about what we allow ourselves to think about and we have to refocus those thoughts to Christ and to the things that he would have us to do to stay away from those things that we allow ourselves to think about and we know we're not supposed to and that will ultimately lead to worse things. So that's when it's very important to refocus your mind to Christ and refocus your mind to Him and His promises and all that He has to offer. And so, um, and then it went to verse 16 that says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And then verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And so I really like that one. And it says, everything good on this earth comes from the Father above. And the footnote on this is really good. Let me find it. I really like it. And it says, James switches his focus in this pivotal verse. Until now, he is concentrated on the evil of temptation. Now he turns to the goodness of God. God does not tempt us to evil. Instead, he gives good gifts. The text uses two different words for gift. The first word emphasizes the act of giving. Every action of God's giving is good. The second emphasizes the benefit of given, of the benefit of the given. Every result of God's giving is good. The phrase "Father of Lights" reminds us of God's unchanging nature, and I really like that because I've never thought about. I've read this verse so many times, and I've never thought about the Father of Lights and how the phrase "The Father of Lights" reminds us of God's unchanging nature. The God who put the stars, sun, and moon in their places faithfully, faithfully presides over his children's life and provides everything good so just stop and think about that the same the same god who put the stars the sun and the moon in their places faithfully presides over his children's lives and provides everything good for us and i just love that because i like how it refers to him as the father of lights because like it said in the footnote it refers to his unchanging nature how he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And how he will never change on us. And if we are worried about anything in this world changing, one thing that we will never, ever have to worry about changing is his love for us and the way that he cares for us and promises us good things. And so I just really like that. Um, and then verse 18 says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the world of truth that we may be kind, that we may be yeah, that we may be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so this next little section is um, 19 through 20. It's just verses 19 and 20. And the header for it says qualities needed in trials. And I just really like that. So it says, um, verse 19 says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so, um, if you really stop and think about it, verse 19, with the header of this little section, says qualities needed in trials. So, what are the qualities needed in trials? We must be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. And we must lay aside all filthiness, which comes to us in verse 20. And so, um, 
or that actually comes to us in verse 21. And so, um, reading verse 21, because I forgot there was a footnote that goes with all three of them. And it says, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So, the footnote for that says, To prepare their hearts to hear God's word in the midst of trial, Christians must concentrate their attention, control their tongues, contain, contain their anger, and cleanse their lives of sin. And I just really like that because that's where I got kind of got that list from, is swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, and lay aside all filthiness and wickedness. And so I just really like that because it really, it's just like the header says, it's our qualities needed in trials. These are the things that we must do in trials in order to help us to persevere through them. And it will make persevering through them so much simpler if we can just follow and just kind of cling to these qualities and make sure that we have those in the midst of trials. And so just kind of breaking it down by verse for verse 20 where it says for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of god um there's a footnote for it that says wrath does not promote the work of god's righteousness uncontrolled anger violates god's standard of conduct for the believer and so we have to be careful of where how we allow our anger to develop and we need to just be so careful about how um and know and be conscious and know that our uncontrolled anger violates god's standard for the conduct of how we are supposed to act as a believer. And it goes back to the slow to wrath part. And then for verse 21, it says, I thought this was kind of like a cool analogy, sort of. And it says, the Greek word for filthiness has moral connotations, but also sometimes describes earwax. Sin is not just incompatible with receiving God's word. It prevents the word from reaching a person's heart. Just as earwax is not just incompatible with our ear, but it prevents words from entering into our ear and not allowing us to hear them so it said sin is not just incompatible with receiving god's word it prevents the word from reaching a person's heart the greek word for receive is translated several times in the new testament as welcome god's word should be welcomed into the heart received with anticipation like a love letter and read with the desire to put its words and commands into practice and we will talk a little bit about um Actually, I'm pretty sure it's the next verse that we're going to read. Um, it talks about that last part where it says, Read with the desire to put its words and commands into practice. So that takes us right to verse 22 that says, um, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And I'm just going to go ahead and read through verse 25. Because there's a footnote for it, but I'm definitely coming back to verse 22. And it says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. And so the footnote that goes verses 23 to 25 says, Simply listening to the word of God has no lasting value. When, when they open the Bible, believers must intend to do what it says. And nine times out of ten, the reason that people don't want to sit down and read the word of God and understand what it says is because they have no intentions of doing what it says. And they don't want to feel guilty for not doing what it says. So that's, I feel like, one of the reasons why believers just or why certain people don't want to read the Bible because they know what it says and they know what it says we have to do and they just don't want to do it. And so to kind of just going back 
and um, circling back to 22, and I said I would come back to this, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And so for that verse, it says the Bible is more than a book to carry to church. It gives its readers a way to follow the heart of God and the footsteps of Jesus. So your Bible is not something you just grab up on Sundays and take to church with you. It is something that is going to allow us to, um, something that allows us to follow the heart of God and show us the way that we must go for the heart of God. And it allows us the footsteps of Jesus and show us how we need to follow in those footsteps. So being merely a hearer of the word, but not putting, but not putting any of it to use is pointless. Being only, being only a hearer is not enough for Christ. So only hearing what this Bible says or hearing, um, hearing the words of Christ, that is, that's not enough. We as believers have to be willing to put, like it says, put his words, put its words and commands into a practice. And we have to be willing to do that. We have to be willing to put into practice what we read. Even when it talks about things that we may think are hard to do, or that we may think that we can't do, we have to be willing to put these things into practice and be willing to submit to God to trust that he can, you know, allow good things to come out of that. And he will. And so, um, verse 23 says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. And so the footnote for that says, The Greek word for hearer has one of the meaning has one of the meanings of auditor today. Someone who merely sits in a class to gain information, but never interacts with the material. God wants his people to go beyond auditing to obeying. And so I really kind of like how it gives us that picture. It's kind of like reading the word of God, but not doing what it says. It's like sitting in a classroom and listening to your teacher, but never, ever interacting with the materials that she has given you to help you learn. It's just like hearing the words, but not really processing them, hearing them and not really wanting to do anything with them. And that is so pointless in the life of a believer because Christ wants us to hear these words and put them into a practice, not simply just hearing them, because what is hearing them doing for a lost world? What is just hearing these words, doing those for the person next to you that may not know Christ? And that's what you have to stop and think about. Because just hearing these and keeping them for yourself or not doing anything out for the world or doing anything for Christ is pointless. Because we can't just be hearers. We have to put these words that Christ has given us into practice. And so um, verse 25 says, But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. And so the one who is not a forgetful hearer is one who will be blessed. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind when you are reading this and you want to be more than just a hearer. That person will be blessed. And so the note first says, um, as James pictures careful students in the Bible, he sees them doing what they read. Casual hearers simply glance at high points of God's word and then go about their life like tourists. Careful heroes mine God's word like gold miners and return with new and life-changing treasures. The Bible must have a continuing effect and effect on the life of a believer. And so the Bible must have a huge lasting effect on the life of a believer in, the, in our lives. It must have a lasting, it uh, must have a lasting effect because it's like, it's like it said, casual hearers simply glance at the high points in God's word and then going about their lives just like a tourist glancing at the pretty parts of the city and then going on about their life and that's not something that we can do it 
this word is telling us careful hearers, mind God's word. We want to be a careful hearer, not a casual hearer. And we, it allows us to mind God's word like gold miners and return with new and life-changing treasures that can not only change our lives, but if we're willing to share it, change the lives of others. And that's something that we have to be willing to do. And so the Bible must have a huge lasting effect on our lives. And if it doesn't, then what are we even doing? If, they, if we're not allowing the Bible to have a lasting effect on our lives and on our day-to-day things, then what is, what is even the point? Like, why are we, why are we reading and just being a hearer? Because that's not enough. We have to read it and hear it and then put it into practice. That is what is enough. That is what we should do every single day and strive to do more of every single day. And so, moving on to verse 26. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read verse 26 and 27 just to finish off the chapter. And then we'll go back and talk about each of them. And it says, if anyone among you thinks he, is, thinks he is religious and does not brittle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one religion, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So going back to verse 26. If you're like me and you didn't know what the word unbridled meant, <laughs> I looked it up and it means uncontrolled or unconstrained. And so um, it doesn't matter what we think of ourselves. What matters is how we do. What, it, what matters is how we do the things the Bible simply like controlling our tongue. It doesn't matter if we think we can control our tongue on our own or brittle our tongue on our own because we can't. We can only do that with help from the Lord. And it says, if anyone among you thinks he is religious, like I said, it doesn't matter what we think, but we don't brittle our tongue. But, and, but deceives our own heart, this one's religion is useless. So if we, it doesn't matter what we think about ourselves, what we think about, about what we think about um, ourselves or how we think that we do certain things. If we don't do the things that the Bible is saying, like if we don't control our tongue, you know, if we don't um, do all these certain commands, then our religion is useless. If we're not willing to do the things that the Bible says, then... It doesn't matter who we think we are. It's who God knows that we are. And um, I just really like that. And the footnote um, for... Yeah, I read the footnote for... Um, oh, no. There's a footnote for 26 and 27 that says, For the third time, James warns his readers about the danger of deception. The unbridled tongue renders a person's testimony useless. So I really like how it says it renders a person's testimony. So say that we go out and we tell these people about Christ and we tell them about what he has done in our lives, but yet they see us not being able to control our tongue and not being able to do the things that we tell them that they need to do. If we can't do it, then it renders our testimony useless because it just, we look like a hypocrite and nobody wants to listen to someone who's like that. And so we have to be careful of that. We have to be careful that we are doing the things that we are telling other people to do. We have to check our own lives first and make sure that our testimony is not useless and that we can be useful to other people who may not know Christ and that we can witness to them in a way that we need to. So we just have to be kind of cautious of that. And then verse 27, the last verse says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the father is this to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And so it says, we are called to be involved in, in the social issues of today while still remaining holy. And that's kind of what the footnote kind of pulls together. It says, Jesus equates the treatment of people in distress with how people treat him. Um, this is the litmus. This is the litmus test of truth. 
Sorry, I lost my place. Jesus equates the treatment of people in distress with how people treat him. This is the litmus test of true faith. To keep oneself unspotted from the world is is to conduct one's earthly life in such a way as to not be ashamed to face the Lord. The believer should be compassionately involved with the social problems of the day while remaining holy. And that's just kind of what I kind of wrote down. We are called to be involved in the social issues of today while still remaining holy. So we are called to, you know, like it says, um, to visit the orphans and the widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world and still keep ourselves unspotted they still keep ourselves holy even while helping these people because if we're going to help people and try to understand what they're going through we can't fall into that too we can't allow ourselves to fall into that because then at that point it was pointless for even helping them because then we're just stuck down there with them so like it says we um pure and undefiled religion before god and the father is to visit the orphans and the widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world so be able to go out and witness to people and help people but be careful and keep yourself unspotted from the world and remain holy so you so that you can help them in the way that they need to be helped and so um i just really like that's the last verse in the um in james and the first chapter of James and I just really like it because you know the first chapter of James gives us so many commands and we must be willing to change some things in our lives to fit the standards of God rather than the standards of this world and that's what some people need to be careful of and understand that we have to be willing to change our lives to fit the standards of this world not try to uh, not that not that we have to be willing to change things in our lives to fit the standards of God rather than trying to change our lives to fit the standards of the world or fit the standards of what this person said we have to be willing to change some things in our life even if it's some things that we don't think we want to give up we have to be willing to change some things in our lives to fit the standards of God and to fit the standards of what his word says we should do in the way that we should be doing things as believers it says be willing to make changes or my final my last little note that I have this is kind of encouragement and sums up this whole book this whole first chapter to me is be willing to make changes to live out these commands because remember being a hearer is not merely enough and I just really like that because it's just kind of like that last bit of encouragement before we begin chapter two but this first chapter be willing to commit to these commands that are given in this first chapter because just like it said back in um Verses like 20, verses 22, basically 23 to the end of the book. Being a hearer is not enough. So keep that in mind. You're only hearing what I've said, not even just what I've said, but what God has allowed to speak to you through these words. Being a hearer only is not enough. And we must be willing to make changes in our lives and be willing to make sacrifices for Christ so to live out these commands because being a hearer is not enough. So we must be willing to not only be hearers, but to be doers of the word and so many more commands that this first chapter has given us. And I just so cannot wait to start this, um, sec- to dive into the second chapter with y'all because I have loved every bit of this first chapter and I've just so loved how um, God has allowed me to dig into this book deeper and deeper every single time that I read it. And I've just loved chapter one. And so I can't wait to dig into chapter two with y'all. So I hope and I pray that someone got something out of this today and I hope that um, this gives you a little bit of encouragement that even though trials and temptations are not fun and they may not be something that everybody wants to go to go through but know that it strengthens you in the end and God is only doing it to strengthen your relationship with him and so that you can grow in maturity for him so I pray that um, we can all be encouraged by this and we can be willing to change 
some things in our life to live out these commands in this first chapter. See y'all next time.